Okay, Proverbs chapter 3. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. We're finishing out our series this week on money entitled True Wealth. Now we've seen so far the distinction between what it means to follow God and what it means to serve and follow the interests of the master of money. We developed values that can guide our giving. And last week on the beach, we looked at this attitude of generosity that God is cultivating in us, a heart and hearts that reflect His heart. Time and again in the Bible, we've seen this all throughout the series, time and again, what we do with our resources is the test that validates that we believe what we believe. If we act the same and think the same and feel the same as everybody else in the world, we're not believers, we're make-believers, right? If we're going to be responding to the Holy Spirit, if we're responding to God's Word, that means we're going to be visibly detached from our wealth, eager to support the works of God, eager to support the needs of others as a reflection of the character of God. Now, this week, I want to complete our study by circling back on a concept that we haven't really covered yet in detail, though it was mentioned in the final verse that I cited Last week at the beach, Luke chapter 6, what did it say there? Jesus said, give and lend to your enemies and don't expect repayment. And when you do that with your money, you're going to reflect the character of God. Why? Because He is gracious. He is giving to even the ungrateful and the wicked. But that's not all that He says. He also says in that same passage, Not only are you going to reflect God's character when you lend to your enemies not expecting to be repaid, but also, he says, great will be your reward. Reward? What's our reward for being generous? What's our reward for putting God first in our finances, for storing up not on earth, but in heaven? Another passage I cited last week, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, look, if you sow abundantly with your resources, you're going to reap abundantly in a harvest. The two correlate one to one. You reap what you sow with your finances. But what are we reaping? What is that harvest? Well, let's start in the Old Testament because there are some very standout passages that speak to the reward we receive from acknowledging God with our resources. Proverbs chapter 3 We're going to read two verses here to start this morning, starting in verse 9 of chapter 3. The verses will be on the screen. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. All right. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. In this context, in ancient Israel, that means typically observe the tithe. Give give the 10%, right? You know, give with this regularity that you're training your heart to revere the Lord, just as we studied a couple weeks ago. You know, bring Him the first fruits. That's another thing that we defined three weeks ago. That that means you're going to be bringing the first of your livestock, the first of the crops, the first of the wool, the first of the olive oil, all the stuff, whatever's first in the season is going to go to God. You're going to give Him your first and best. You're not going to give Him your leftovers. And what's going to result? The proverb says, Then your barn doors 
are going to have to be shut quickly, right? To just keep it all in. Then your vats, they're going to fill to the brim. You guys ever seen that weird physics thing that happens when you like fill a coffee all the way to the top or water in a glass and it's like over the top but doesn't leak out? It's like, what kind of miracle, strange magic is that? The surface tension holding it there. He's like, that's what it's going to be like in the vats of your new wine. So wait, are we hearing the Bible right? Are we hearing God's word right? I mean, yes. If, if you honor God with your money, what does it say? You'll have more than you know what to do with. Give, it says, and you're going you're gonna to get I mean, that sounds like a tantalizing promise. I mean, everybody take out your wallets. Get out your phones. Let's go to Venmo. I don't see anyone moving. Okay, thank you, Mike. Richard, excuse me. Guys, the same way that you, like, take a pause, even following, you know, the clarity of that passage... Like it's, it's so clear. The same way that you take pause and go, oh, is he serious? Come on. Come on, really? That's the same way the Israelites looked at these principles of giving and the tithes and offerings. They, too, paused. They, too, kept themselves from actually obeying what God had said and ignored these principles. We're going to go to Malachi chapter 3. We already went to Malachi chapter 1 a couple weeks ago where we saw that they had kind of cut corners in the sacrifices that they were offering. They were given the lame animals. It didn't really cost them anything so that they could fulfill the religious obligations, and they thought God was going to be satisfied with it. But they also neglected, very frequently through their history, and clearly here in Malachi 3, offering the tithe, offering the first fruits. And how does God respond? In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Well, um, God, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You know, right here, God is saying that he's being robbed because they're not bringing the tithe and offering. They're not providing for him the first fruits offering. Have you ever been robbed? Have you ever had anything stolen from you? Oh, I remember, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago, the only possession I had was my 98 Honda Civic. And it had all the bumper on the back and the front torn up and the peeling clear coat. And, uh, you know, it leaked to three different types of fluid. The AC basically didn't work. But this was it. This was my, this was my steed by which I traversed the freeways of Orange County, my reliable steed. And, and there was one day, it was parked out overnight, and someone broke into that car and took from me my CD player. 
Now, you know, you look to the left and the right of the car, and the, the, all the cars are better. That is literally the worst car you could possibly imagine the one that these thieves decided to attack. And so it's just insult to injury to me that they're going to take this CD player. And, and I just said, forget it. I'm never going to replace it. I'll just sit in silence, I guess, for hours on the freeway as I commute around. Like, fine. But, but guys, it's not that I couldn't afford it, and it's not about just the money of it. Sure, it maybe was a lot for me at the time to replace it for 100 bucks. I didn't have that extra money. But at the end of the day, what really bothered me was how I felt violated. Have you ever been stolen from anyone, robbed from you? And you go, whoa, that was my space that you came into, and you took my stuff. You know, it was that feeling of violation. God says, I feel violated by my own people. Though the resources are in their hands, so that makes them think those are their resources, because of the way they're relating to them, because of the way they're storing them up and hoarding them, those are actually stolen goods that they are possessing. Now, I didn't have any recourse to do anything about those thieves. I didn't know who they were. I could never follow up with them. But this is God. And mere mortals are robbing from God. So he has the capacity to respond. He says the whole nation is going to be under a curse. Now they can rectify their error by filling up his house with food, by bringing in the tithe. Now why does his house need to be filled with food? Is this because God is hungry or something? No, he's making a statement you know, about their lack of obedience and what their obedience would mean. Like, their lack of obedience is indicating that they don't trust God for their present or future provision. You know, they're going to go hungry because there's no food in the house of God. They think it's going to be the opposite. And on top of that, practically, but also with spiritual implications, is the fact that the priests are not going to have food. And if the priests don't have food, they're going to go to other ventures like we saw in the book of Nehemiah. The spiritual institutions are going to be in decline and there's going to be national soul decay. So it's astonishing. In response, God says, look, bring it in. Test me. Try it out. Try before you buy. You know, 30-day guarantee. Right? You don't even have to make this your lifestyle yet. He's not, he's not even saying like, hey, you got to plan out your next 10 years of giving. Do it one time and test me and see what I do. I'll give you more than you can store up. I'll prove to you. Proverbs chapter 3, give and you'll get. Now this, what I've just shared from Proverbs 3 backed up by Malachi chapter 3 is the basic framework for the modern prosperity gospel. Its message tells us that if we just observe God's commands around generosity in the Bible, then we'll all become rich and wealthy and blessed and maybe we'll look younger too. We'll be healthier, right? The reward for giving to God in the prosperity gospel is you will get back. Now, is that true? Is that how God relates to us in Jesus? Is that how he relates to us transitioning from the Old Testament, these principles that we've seen right here, into the New Testament, into our lives today? I mean, Luke 6 said, that, you know, great is going to be our reward when we lend to our enemies not expecting to be repaid back. 2 Corinthians, again, that verse I cited. If we sow generously, we're going to reap generously, right? But that's not even the most interesting thing that is said in 2 Corinthians. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
I left off in verse 9 last week. We're going to go back. We're going to retrace some steps from last week on the beach back to verse 6, and we're going to go a little bit further this morning. Remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You know, the same way a farmer, the minute seed as he puts in the ground, that's how much crops he's going to get on the other side. How much money you're going to give to the works of God and those in need, that's how much you're going to reap on the other side. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, I didn't read this. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Very interesting. If you follow the line Paul is walking here, he's saying, take your resources and give them to God and to his people in need, and what will result? Two things are cited in verse 10. One, God will increase the store and supply of your seed, and two, he's going to enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So the latter one is one that we already talked about last week on the beach. They're like, this is the reputation of righteousness that's going to go forth from amongst you. As you give to what is true and right and good, people are going to see that you haven't held on to your wealth, but you're reflecting God's purposes in the way that you utilize your resources. You're going to be widely known as the generous people that we're to be based on the gospel. But the former result, supplying and enlarging the store of seed... What else can that mean except that if we give our money, we'll have more than we had at the outset? So I guess, my friends, forget Financial Peace University. Forget Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You know, forget NFTs and Bitcoin and Amway. If you want to be blessed, if you want to have that new beachfront property, if you want that new classy electric SUV, you will get all you want by giving to God. But wait a minute. I think we've got to check our notes here with some other things that we studied in this series. Because if that's in your heart, that you're going to give in order to get, if that's your motive, what did we hear a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So if we're giving to get, if we're wanting to get rich, Aren't we falling headlong into a trap, into a pit? And I mean, wanting to get rich, isn't that like the purest example of serving the master of money, which we talked about in the first week? You cannot serve both God and money. If you serve the master of money, inevitably you will end up hating God. Maybe you don't hate God with your words, but you're going to hate Him in your heart. Isn't the love of money and wanting to get rich the quintessential pathway of the individual who's trying to gain the world, 
which Jesus warns and is called the discipleship, is going to lead to them losing their soul. I mean, that's the key problem with the prosperity gospel. Its definition of prosperity is constrained to this life of blessing. Gaining this world and keeping this world and getting rich here by being healthy here. And if the prosperity gospel is oriented toward gaining the world, it is also necessarily oriented toward helping its followers lose their souls. What a wicked thing to use the source of our salvation, Jesus, to tempt people with damnation. That doesn't sound like prosperity to me. That doesn't sound like good news to me. If we're going to call that message the prosperity gospel, we might as well just rebrand meth as a new superfood. Because it gives you a lot of energy and it makes you skinny, right? So what does Paul say to a young Timothy when he's faced with the temptation that's common to all of wanting to get rich? Let's continue on, just the next verse. He said, but you... Man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, run. Run from the love of money. Flee from any hint that that's what you're after. Giving to get or just getting, period. Like, like, don't play on the line. Don't listen to people who get all the way up to the line, but don't really embrace that or say that, but pretty much they're saying that. Don't listen to those people. Run as far away from that as possible and give yourself over to pursuing righteousness and godliness. Fight the good fight of faith. You've got a limited amount of time in this world, man. You can live it all for yourself, or you can roll up your sleeves and you can fight the good fight for something that's greater than this life. Don't just live for a life of vacuous leisure, right? Take hold of eternal life. And that's it, what Paul directs Timothy toward. That is prosperity. The true prosperity gospel is one that keeps us oriented toward the promises of heaven, not constantly seeking the blessings of today. I mean, we must seem like the most contradictory people in all the world to non-believers, our distinctive belief in Jesus is the gift of God's grace and forgiveness through the cross. He died on the cross to take away our sin. He was resurrected to life. We have the promise of resurrection alongside him through faith in him and its everlasting life. That everlasting life is supposed to put this life in its place and in perspective. But when we are constantly filling the church with get-rich schemes... And when we have all these institutions with, you know, money fraud, and all the messages are oriented toward here and now, here's the blessing God wants for you, here's the healing God wants for you now, here's the wealth that God wants for you now, here's the plans that are going to go exactly the way that you want in this world, and God is going to get it done for you. Anytime we have that focus, we disavow the hope of heaven Amen. and the patient endurance that it takes to actually get there. We end up seeming more obsessed with this world than anyone else, even more so than those who don't believe. It's a contradiction. I'm a coach for my son's little league team. 
I call myself the assistant to the assistant coach because I'm the least helpful and or knowledgeable of the coaches. I'm on crowd control, I'm on kid control, that's my contribution, right? There's a major contradiction in the coaching of Little League because the coaches will stress with the kids. It's not about whether you win or lose. It's about the heart. I just care that you play really hard out there. I want you to play your heart out. And, you know, it doesn't matter about how much, you know, we score. They actually limit the game. You can only score up to four runs, and then it's over, or you get the three outs, and then you move on to the next inning. That's just to prevent it just being this run-up, you know, of a score. It's not about that, right? But at the end of every inning, the coaches are celebrating the success of our team. They've done all this preaching. They've been all, done all this talking about the values behind driving the game. But then when it comes to the actual game, we are celebrating that we scored all four runs that we could possibly score and that we closed them out with only one. What's the score? What's the score as we're going in? The guys are yelling at each other as the kids are going into the dugout. Oh, it's 13-3. We're killing them. It's a contradictory message, right? We have that same dynamic going on when we're oriented toward God blessing us constantly in the here and now rather than in heaven. It makes us seem just as contradictory to the rest of the world. In the Old Testament, it's a little different, man. Proverbs 3, Malachi chapter 3, they didn't have an eternal vision that we have. All they had was today and the covenant promises that tied their earthly prosperity to their obedience to God's commands. That was then, but now our nation and blessing is in the kingdom of heaven. Now our nation and blessing is in the kingdom of heaven that is coming and will come. Or am I confused? Was it that John saw in his revelation, America descending from heaven, dressed as a bride, white and red and blue? You know, was it, a, was it a heavenly Huntington Beach that came down, a main street of gold leading to a heavenly Baja Sharkies? I don't think so. That's the biggest oxymoron you've ever heard. No, John saw Zion. He saw the heavenly Jerusalem, the city where God is king. That's where our truest blessing is. It's high time for us as Christians to believe the actual good news and look and live toward the prosperity that is to come. But on our way there, I'll admit, I still haven't resolved this tension here from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, as we give, God's going to increase the supply of our seed. And following the analogy of the passage, how is he referring to anything else except the fact that when we give, we're going we're gonna to get some more money on the other side. But what does he say in full? Because I kind of tricked you. We stopped. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 10 and on, 2 Corinthians 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for a food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. For what purpose? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God 
for his indescribable gift. So what is he saying? He's saying, as you're generous and laying up a harvest of righteousness, does he say God will increase our supply so that we can live a luxury-laden life of self-indulgence that lets everyone in the world know that we're now the new blessed covenant people of God? Is that what he says? If that were true, there's a pastor I met in Gulu, Uganda, who's biking on a dirt road 15 miles every Sunday out into the middle of nowhere in 90-degree heat to preach to a village church of 40 people. If our spiritual obedience was directly correlating with our material wealth, that guy would be a billionaire yesterday. How many of us are giving more than he is giving? We don't give to get. Paul says God will supply and increase us so that when we give, we can give more. We don't give to get. He, we give so that we can give more. He says you'll be enriched in every way so that you can give always. And it doesn't lead to earthly prosperity. This is about bringing praise to God. So whereas the prosperity gospel says, hey, give to get, we Christians give to give more because that is Jesus. Because that is the character of God. Because that is the gospel message. We don't want to get rich. We want to be rich in the character of God. Our primary goal is not to be immersed in wealth. We want to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. We're hungry for the riches of heaven. Like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, don't store up treasures on earth, right? Because moth and rust are going to destroy. What kind of reward is it if we give our resources away, they're going to rot and, and be destroyed. If God says, now I'm going to give you more stuff that's going to get destroyed. That's not, even the, that's not even the stuff that we're supposed to be longing for. That's not even helpful. Oh, now I have more things that I get to store up that are going to rot and decay. We're not giving to get. No, don't store up treasures on earth. Give. And what are you laying up? You're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Put your heart there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Essentially, he says, when we give, and when we give to give, we exchange the currency of earth for the currency of heaven. It's the same dynamic as if like, you're going on an abroad trip and you're going to Europe. You have to exchange your dollars for euros because your dollars aren't worth anything. It's just paper. Where we're going, they don't accept dollars. We have a limited amount of time to exchange our dollars for the currency of heaven. True wealth, that which goes on forever and leads to true prosperity. Guys, I want that word back. I want to take that word back. Because we have the good news of salvation and resurrection through Jesus in heaven. That's prosperity. That's the, that's the gospel. And it's the prosperity gospel. I want to be its number one proponent. The number one proponent of the prosperity gospel. You heard it here. But I mean it in the scriptural sense because I want that word back. We have the promise and we have the hope of new bodies where there is perfect and lasting healing from pain and trauma. We have eternal riches that the richest person in the world it can't even compare to what we're going to have before us. We have a reality, a glory about to be revealed in us that makes the unimaginable suffering that we all have to go through at one point in our lives, it makes it 
like light and momentary troubles is what Paul says. When you get that glory, can you imagine? Some of you have been through unimaginable suffering. How good is that glory to make that unimaginable suffering feel like light and momentary troubles? That is the prosperity gospel. We have the message of true wealth. I want that word back. Here we are at the end of this series, and having seen and heard so much from the scriptures, now I wonder, what's changed for you? What's changed? Are you sharing or are you storing just the same? Have you reoriented any of your priorities? Has God done any work to change your attitudes and your desires regarding your possessions? Very simple to find the answers to those questions. Don't get into a long conversation with yourself. Just follow your money. That'll answer it for you. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to find where your heart is? You can rationalize and talk yourself into and out of every kind of thing you want to. Follow your money and you'll see where your heart resides. Has anything changed? Has anything changed? Guys, this is a limited time offer like I was talking about. Have you guys ever missed like a financial windfall and you just kick yourself later? You know, you see the price of homes up, 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 up. 14, 15 years, you go, man, I wish I would have bought real estate in 2010. And you just kick yourself, right? Gosh, there was that window. And I thought it was so expensive. But you know how wealthy I would be today? You guys look at Bitcoin, you're like, I don't even know what it is. I never knew what it was, but I sure wish I would have bought some of it. In 2020, that, that invisible whatever it is, because it was worth so much more, you know? How many of us are like, 50-gallon drums of gas should have been purchased six months ago? I missed it! This is a limited-time offer. We have a window that is closing where we can take what is valuable now but is going to be worthless later and trade it for something that's going to be valuable for all of eternity. And I want us to seize this moment. I want to never look at this life and eternity the same. I want the Holy Spirit to change our perspective, to change our goals, to change our behavior from the heart, to be different, to be generous on earth and rich in heaven. Let's pray for that by the power of God's Spirit. Heavenly Father, you are generous. You have blessed us. You are kind and gracious even to the wicked and ungrateful. How much more to your children. Lord, we have received so much, more than we can even fathom at this point. If we could just see heaven. And we can through your word and we can by your Holy Spirit. We can peer forward past this life. We just know, God, it's so much bigger. It's so much greater. This life is a breath. It's a passing shadow. We're here for a little bit, and then we vanish, and we're before you, God. And what we have and what we amass here, we can't carry over, but it can testify against us. 
make it witness against us that we did not live for the life to come, but we stored up here on earth. God, break the power that the master of money has over us that we willingly relinquish. Lord, let us make you our Lord and master. Help us to know what to do so that we can serve you, your purposes, your goals with our resources in this world, Lord, that we would lay hold of what is truly wealth, true prosperity. God, lead us to change. Lead us to change. Empower us to do what we can't do ourselves. It seems so difficult. It seems so hard. It doesn't make sense. God, it'll make sense. When we obey, our heart will follow that obedience and we'll be storing up treasures where the treasure lasts. So God, I'm asking right now, we've heard so much from your word. We've gone so many places in your scriptures. You've spoken so much truth. Where's our response? What are you going to do in us? How are you going to shift us and change us? I pray you don't change us for one afternoon, for one lunch conversation, God, that you just change us, that you just flip that that switch in us, and we just think different, we just feel different. This will be a part of a brand new journey of how we even look at this life, look at our resources, God, and we're never going back. We're going to keep going toward your heart, toward reflecting your heart. Pray that you continue this work by your Holy Spirit into this time, into this time of worship and beyond it. In Jesus' name.